host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. So let's quickly go through our syllabus. The first thing I want to say is this schedule is tentative. I am still in the process of writing our yeah, the, the whole class. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of arranging this. So some of this might I might move stuff around. So this uh, schedule could change, but I don't know that that would bother any of us. Oh no, but I think. <laughs> Certainly, you, you kind of, at least having a syllabus, at least you get an idea of where, where things are going. So so last week we did the introduction, and we'll have a few more introductory pieces that I forgot to touch last week. And then tonight we're going to talk about the British roots in North America. And then that will tonight we'll end with the French and Indian War. And then next week we'll go from the French and Indian War until dec- probably the Declaration of Independence where we'll leave off next week. And then... After that, we'll we'll talk about the actual war. Oh no, I have a spot for Declaration of Independence, so we'll send, set aside a whole. That the one labeled Declaration of Independence is probably going to be about the Second Continental Congress. So where does the Boston Tea Party fit in here? After the Declaration, I watched that. That'll be that'll be tomorrow. No, the Boston Tea Party was about a year and a half before the declaration I think yeah they didn't like the taxes no they, yeah they, yeah no, the Boston the Tea Party the special they were going to, to the continent deciding who was going to go to the Continental Congress I think it was some something yeah the the Tea Party predates Lexington and Concord so it's before it's part of what leads up to the war then the, yeah we'll talk about the declaration of independence a lot of that will be about the Second Continental Congress and how it was gathered and stuff. And then we'll spend a whole night talking about, at the end of February, we'll talk about the fact that not every American was gung-ho for independence or, or even on our side of the war. In many ways, the Revolutionary War had a lot of hallmarks of a civil war. And so there were patriots and then there were loyalists. The loyalists were the terms given to those that were still loyal to the king, and the patriots were, I think we've all watched uh, enough specials to know who the patriots are supposed to be. And then... uh, You mean a football thing? Well, yeah, that too. (laughs) Oh, by the way, I I chased like nine bunny trails last week, so I'm not afraid to chase them now. So, Um, I hated the patriots. For years, I just hated their guts. 
and I got sick of them winning all the time. And then now that the Chiefs are the hated team, I don't. As I as I think back, I don't dislike the Patriots as much as I used to. I'm like, they earned it. They were a good team. Tom Brady, exactly. I kind I've gotten to where I actually kind of like it when you watch a TV program and all the analysts except one pick uh, whoever the Chiefs are playing, and then the Chiefs win, and then after the game they all have to justify their pick, and I love it. They act like that's who they thought was going to win anyway. Well, not always. I've... There used to be a lot of sports analysts that would do that. I think they've, in the age of Twitter and TikTok, I think they've gotten away from that because it's it's really easy to splice two pieces of video to make you look like an idiot. Uh-huh. Uh, on either side of spring break, we'll, we'll talk about the middle stages and the final stage, stages of the war. And then I mentioned this last week. When you talk about the American Revolution, you're really talking about two different things. You're talking about the, the war and you're talking about the political all the interesting political stuff that was going on at the same time. So the rest of the class, the, uh, April and May, we'll, we'll talk about the latter half of all that political stuff. So we'll talk about the Articles of the Confederation, which was our first government, and then the Articles of the Confederation, spoiler alert, weren't very good. They just were, were non-functional. For one thing, they required anonymity. So if any one state doesn't want to do something, we're starting to find out a problem with this now with NATO. Is We've added enough nations to NATO that now every time we want to do something, all it takes is Hungary or Turkey to say no, and then we're, we have a problem. Well, that was the same with the Articles of, the Confeder- Articles of Confederation. It was part of the reason why certain individuals wanted to move towards a new system. So we'll talk about all the movement towards that. Then we'll have a night talking about the Constitution. And then after that, we'll we'll back up a little bit. I'm going to spend one night where I just talk about, I don't know how long I'll spend on each person. If if I want to cover a lot of people, well, it'll only have to be about five minutes apiece. Or I might just cover ten or so. But we'll talk about the Founding Fathers. And at that point, it'll probably be a lot of filling in. Because obviously, at that point, we'll have already talked a lot about Washington, and we will have already talked a lot about Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. So there will probably be some filling in. And then after that, we'll talk about the early stages of the government under the Constitution. So we'll talk about the first two presidencies, and then after that, we'll talk about the 24 years in which Virginia Republicans served. So Jefferson two terms, Madison two terms, and Monroe two terms. It's still the longest, the longest unending political hold on the White House in, in our history. And I don't think we'll ever beat it. I don't think we'll ever have more than 24 years uh, holding on to the White House. And then uh, our last one, we'll talk about the constitutional amendments. So we'll talk about the constitutional amendments. And then, so on our last class... That'll take us from not only the the Bill of Rights, which was one of the first things that the first Congress did, but that'll take us all the way up to 1992. So we'll we'll talk about how each amendment comes into effect and what was the scenario, how was it passed, and then I want to spend at least 30 minutes or so giving you some of my great ideas about what I would do if, if I could have some amendments of my own. So... We talked a little bit about that last week. Like one of my ideas is, I would start two 
of two amendments I'd start at the same time. And one I would send to the Conference of the States, so I would bypass Congress, and it would be term limits for Congress. Four terms in the House, two terms in the Senate, end of story. The other one, I would say, it would be the same thing, except there would be a, uh, a, a rider on it that says anybody who's in Congress now is grandfathered in. They don't have to be term limited. And I would send that one to Congress, and then I would tell Congress, you better hurry. If you guys want to, if you all want to be term, uh, to, to uh, be grandfathered in, better pass it before the Conference of the States passes theirs. Because if the if the Conference of the States passes the amendment without Congress, by the way, it's happened before. That's how prohibition was passed. It's the only constitutional amendment that passed that bypassed Congress so far. But uh, if, and I tell Congress, if if we go that route, then your guys are all done. Well, not all, but all of you who have served at least four terms in the House and two terms in the Senate. So that would put the fire under the Congress to pass term limits. So. That's what that, that that would be one of the things I would do. Now you notice I've I have no required reading this semester. I mostly because I couldn't settle on one, and because the books I like most about the American Revolution are long. Like the the uh, Alexander Hamilton book by Ron Chernow on Audible is like sixty hours, I think. It is a big book. So well, I you did, and so did Lin Manuel Miranda. He, he, he read that. That's the book he read on vacation one day or one year, and then decided to write Hamilton, the play. The play, yeah, exactly. So here's our recommended reading books: uh, John Adams by David McCullough. It's a very good book. That, by the way, is the basis for the HBO miniseries John Adams that was done about 15 years ago. Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. Uh, His Excellency George Washington by Joseph J. Ellis. And those three guys, their books, I think if you like reading history, those are three really good choices for reading early American history. So McCullough, Chernow, and Ellis. And then the book I'm reading, no, actually I just finished it, is The Framer's Coup. And that makes it, the, the title makes it sound like he's in, like saying that the framers did something bad. No, the, his argument is that the framers were able to pull a rabbit, a political rabbit out of a hat, that they were able to forge a good government despite all the immense pressures against the Constitution when it was founded. So it's the framers of the Constitution. Yeah. It, it, well, the, the book is about the making of the Constitution. Michael J. Klarman is a lawyer, not a historian. Where actually he's, the way it is described in the book is he is a historian of law, but his, professionally he's a lawyer. The book is about the making of the Constitution. And then finally we have some uh, what I'll call original documents from the, t- the time we're talking about. The Federalist Papers by Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay were a series of articles that were written as the New York as the New York ratifying conventions were meeting to ratify the Constitution. New York was one of the states that was deemed unlikely to actually ratify the Constitution. So Hamilton, who's from New York, and J- James Madison and John Jay, I think Jay was also from New York. Madison was from Virginia wrote a series of articles to try to convince New York to ratify the Constitution and 
they were direct refutation of articles that were being made by the anti-federalists. That's where the, the people who did not want to ratify the Constitution. And then even earlier, the book Common Sense, now this is short, it was written as a pamphlet. Now as a pamphlet, it's extremely long. It's like 40, 50 pages. But as a book, it's not very long, but it's Common Sense by Tom and Thomas Paine. So are these written in Old English where they're going to be hard for the, yeah, like <laughs> they're not written in 21st century English, but it's not like Shakespeare. So it, it would, uh, I, I believe we could read it. I mean, you, you probably wouldn't be able to read them quickly. I don't even think I could read them quickly. I've read not all of the Federalist Papers, but some of them, and it's, it's, it's a little weighty, but nothing, nothing too bad. And I actually have not read Common Sense. I planned on rectifying that this, uh, this semester. And common sense was basically the first time that somebody was actually willing to come out and say, you know what, we should be independent. And the printers thought that they might sell a thousand copies. They ended up having to make hundreds of thousands of copies and counting bootleg copies, probably half a million were made and spread throughout the colonies and around England. Any questions about our syllabus? And like I said, it will be subject to not whole changes, but I'll, I might push things around a little bit to make, make things fit. It looks to me like before the break could be one whole class, and before, after the break could be another whole semester. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're going to fly through some of this. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, um, I'll have to be selective about some of the stuff we're going to talk about. So, for instance, as I was preparing my notes, I started realizing I was going to do a history of all 13 colonies and realized that if I did that justice, that would be like three classes alone, talking about the, the individual histories of all the colonies. So when we get to that part tonight, I, I'm not going to be giving much history on each colony, just kind of a simple understanding of where each colony come from and why it was different from the colonies around it. Alright, so first we're going to start with Native American history. I'm ashamed to say we probably won't talk too much about Native Americans in this class, mostly because the, the, a lot of the most interesting things that happen around the American Revolution, Native tribes are really kind of staying out of it. Now, some tribes will fight for the Patriots, fight with us against the British, and other tribes will fight with the British against the Patriots. So we'll probably, I'll probably mention some Native American events that happened during the American Revolution, but I, I'm sad to say that white attitudes towards natives was not very good. Not, not, very, not a lot of racial harmony. But it is important to realize that we're not the indigenous of this continent. And so who were the indigenous of this continent? Well, humans first came to North America at least 13,500 years ago. We can date that because of this. This is the Clovis, New Mexico archaeological site. And actually, I don't know when that picture was taken. I didn't put it in my notes. But at the Clovis archaeological site, they found evidence that humans were hunting and using bone tools in New Mexico at least 13,500 years ago, which implies that people had been on on the continent quite a bit before that too because I mean if I guess if you just set out and walked from Alaska down to New Mexico you could get there in a few years but 
it's unlikely that populations just naturally, it will probably take a couple hundred years for populations to just naturally move that way. 13,000, you say? Yeah, at least 13,500 years ago. The current prevailing theory about where Native Americans come from is that they come from Asia and they crossed the Bering Strait. Up at Alaska. Yeah, up at Alaska. So, so crossed from far east Russia over into Alaska. And then I've read articles that, that suggest multiple possibilities. One is that during an ice age they could just cross on the ice. Another is that, that because of winds and, and rain patterns and stuff, that maybe there was an, actually a land corridor along, perhaps uh, as, you know, as, as I don't, I'm not a meteorologist, but as weather crosses mountains, it, it, it'll condense and rain in one place, and then the other side of the mountain will be completely dry, the leeward and windward side of mountains, that perhaps there was a, pretty, a, a relatively dry corridor somewhere along western Canada that allowed people to come into the, the less frozen parts of North America from that far north. But I've always thought, you know, as close as Russia and Alaska are, I'm not sure why boats couldn't have been involved as well. We already know that the Austro-Pacific peoples were able to populate most of the islands of the Pacific, including Easter Island, which, I mean, you have to cross almost the entire Pacific to get there from where they came from, around Micronesia, Polynesia, that area. And they all did it on outrigger-type boats. I'm not sure why the original inhabitants of North America couldn't have done something very similar. However they came here, that's the prevailing theory, is that's where they come from. It's a very plausible theory because genetically... Native Americans are closer related to Asians than they are to other populations of humans. And that becomes really clear when you look at, for instance, the Inuit peoples, once called Eskimos. They look, to our untrained eye, they look Asian. They, they don't look as much like uh, Cherokees or Osage or, or the Native Americans we might be more used to. They actually look more Asian to our untrained eyes. Since I've already brought it up, Native American groups are incredibly diverse. They're not monolithic in any way. The United States government recognizes 574 distinct Native American tribes. And that's, that's just the ones that have been recognized by the United States federal government. We know that there are well over 2,000. Now, how one tribe gets distinct from another is sometimes murky. A lot of times, very closely related tribes, if you were able to go back in the history, you might find that it just came down to maybe two brothers who just couldn't get along. So they split and started a new tribe at some point. So some tribes are very, very, very similar, and then some tribes are very, very different. So for instance, the Wampanoag uh, which are the first tribe to encounter the Mayflower pilgrims, were very different, for instance, uh, than from the Comanches, the incredibly warlike and capable warrior tribe of the Plains. And both of them are incredibly different from the Inuit, once called the Eskimos. 
And by the way, the Inuit are one of the most spread. Not only there's there's not very many of them. There's where where you get really cold. There's just not a high population, but they're spread out very far. There are Inuit. Now, all these groups are are closely related groups. It's not one monolithic group. But from Greenland to Far East Russia, the Inuit are spread all along the top of our continent like that. In the United States and Canada, there were as many as 12 million indigenous people before Columbus. And at the same time, now this is before Christopher Columbus, there were as many as perhaps 12 million in the United States and Canada. Of course, we know how big United States and Canada are. I mean, they're the second and third largest country on earth now. That's actually not a whole lot of people. But it's a lot more than, than what some people once believed. Some people once believed there might have only been just a couple hundred thousand. That's incredibly unlikely. And I'll get to why some people estimated. Anyway, at the same time, Mexico had perhaps as many as 37 million. There are no exact numbers, unfortunately. Like I said, estimates range, depending on which expert you talk to or when that expert did their expertise you know, the late 1800s, 1920s, 1990-something. Estimates range from 1 million to 12 million in the United States and Canada, and between 3 and 37 million in Mexico. Why are those numbers so very different? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is how this or that expert gets to those estimates. So a lot of estimates, a lot on the low-end estimates, are based on white settlers' interaction with natives. And based on that, the estimates can be based at, on, on the low end. Because the Europeans who came to this continent did not encounter millions of Native Americans. They encountered very small numbers of Native Americans. Do you guys know why? Like the Mayflower Pilgrims, for instance, when they showed up, there were entire villages that were just, there was nobody there. Obviously established villages with nobody there, it's because of smallpox and various other diseases. They had no natural immunity to. Was that because of Columbus's, the people that were on those ships? Yes. They... But those there ships, wasn't anywhere they could have picked it up anywhere else. Yes, that's... But those ships, Columbus, he never really stepped foot on it. Well, that's what it's like. It's not just Columbus. But, well, yeah, once Columbus, it, the answer is it, from Europeans is where it came that's from. That's what killed all Hawaiians. There are other reasons. There's ideological reasons. Those who uh, want to advocate for minority rights will emphasize you know, a, a much larger number of indigenous populations. They're trying to uh, highlight that this continent really belongs to them and that uh, they want to highlight just how many natives were killed by disease. They're, sometimes estimates can just be outdated or they're not based on updated archaeological evidence. And finally, one of the reasons why these estimates are so hard is because very few native or very few indigenous American tribes or societies had written language, and so they did not have history. They did not have history annals to to consult. Most native, and I might be wrong about this, I'll admit right now, 
the history of Native Americans is one of my weak spots and that I plan to rectify soon. If that, by the way, if any of you guys have any book recommendations, I'll take them. I, I read last fall. I read Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, I wanted to read it before I watched the movie, and then I just got so busy I haven't seen the movie yet. So I want to. It's uh, worth going. To. Oh, your dad says so too. He oh, says yeah. such a great movie. The only other Native American history book that I've read, that I know I've read, is uh, 1491. Uh, but that was that covered so much. That tried to tell the state of Native American communities from Alaska to Chile. So that book covered so much area, it didn't really wasn't able to go into de- a, a lot of details about what Native American society was like before Europeans got involved. Are you including the Aztec and all of them? Oh yeah. Well, on our class, I'm really I'm not going to talk much about Aztecs and Incas and all them yet. That, when you say Native Americans, you're including them. Yeah, that's why I, I've terms like. By the way, I, when I grew up, the term Indian was considered like kind of a pejorative. Like you you don't use you you don't say Indian, you say Native American. Most of the stuff I see online, Native Americans often will use the term American Indian. So I'm, I might be missing something here. That might be a term that's coming back into vogue, similar to how African American is still an acceptable term, but most black people I know just use the term black. So it might just be one of those one of those situations. So the estimates for the indigenous population are wide ranging, but I tend to lean towards the higher end because. If we assume that Western diseases really did ravage the Americans after European contact, and we know they did, we've got lots of evidence, then it's not unlikely that those higher-end numbers are accurate. So I tend to put the number of Native Americans before European contact around the 10 to 12 million range. But I also just admit that I'm not an expert. So based on those numbers, then the numbers... It's really sad then just how bad diseases struck the Native American population. To put this in perspective, the whole world freaked out about COVID and then everybody got political about it and so now we're all afraid to talk about it because we think we're going to upset people. But we can actually look at the statistics on something called excess deaths. So at any given time in in a society where everything's going normal, you're going to have people die. You're going you know, to have people who, who die from old age and disease or people who die from car accidents or whatnot. There's a, a pretty standard statistical amount of people who tend to die. And then when a disease comes through, some, you know, maybe it's just flu season, you see the deaths and by percentage creep up a little bit. That's called excess deaths. Well, with COVID, that excess death number climbed quite a bit. But we're talking in the like 5% range, not the 95% range. The Native American, there were entire tribes that were wiped out by smallpox. It, it is under some estimates, as much as 95% of the indigenous population died from, from these diseases. And by the way, there's no reason to believe that that was intentional because the Europeans did not have a germ theory of disease yet. Most Europeans knew enough to know that whether they knew about germs, they did not. But 
most people realize that if somebody brings the Black Plague into your town, then other people get the Black Plague. So the idea of, of coming into contact, either breathable air or touch, can spread disease. We all understood that. But the problem is that if you if you grow up in, in Europe with trade routes that have connected Europe to Asia and Africa for thousands and thousands of years, everybody who grew up in Europe had have, had access to things like smallpox and measles probably had the diseases when they were kids. And so they could be carriers and not even know it. They could be asymptomatic. So when European explorers, businessmen, and religious communities came over here, it's not like the Netherlands was sending a boat full of smallpox victims and say, hey, go hang out with the natives, try to get them killed. Typically speaking, if you were deathly ill, you're not going to survive that trip anyway. If you had a bad case of smallpox or yellow fever or the measles, you're not going to, probably not going to get on the boat. You're not going to survive the trip. So we're talking about healthy asymptomatic carriers who brought over the disease, but then you bring the disease into a community with no natural immunity, it just spread like wildfire. Like typhoid Mary. Yes. A lot of times when we look at stuff like this, we want to say, where, where does the blame fall? I'm not sure blame is the right framing of this. We can admit that this is an incredible tragedy without accusing our European ancestors of committing biological warfare. Especially when we can already accuse them of committing actual warfare, which they often did. So I think we, it, when we look at stuff like that, maybe we should focus on what they actually did and not what they might could have done if they you know, had more knowledge. But this is why a lot of times the early American settlers will write, like in their journals or to their friends and family back in Europe, they'll write about how it seems like these native savages, this is not my words, these savages have been plagued by God to, uh, in his providence to remove them from the land and give it to us. Uh, you know, from, well, from a certain perspective, I suppose that, that was what it felt like. So by the time English settlers arrive on the East Coast, by the way, diseases had already done their worst. Because diseases travel much farther and faster than settlers ever do. So as soon as the Spanish and Portuguese and French and English and Dutch and Swedish and, and whoever, whatever Europeans, as soon as they arrive, as soon as they make contact, those diseases are going to start to spread. And so there's evidence that these diseases had already spread, to say, for instance, had spread from tribe to tribe across the Appalachian Mountains and was affecting native communities in the Ohio River Valley and even the Mississippi River Valley and the Great Plains long before Europeans ever even got to those places. There were people who died of European diseases without ever having met a European or a European-American. Okay, I mentioned briefly the First Great Awakening last week, and I believe you asked me to do a little bit more to explain what that was. Okay, so the First Great Awakening was a religious movement that happened in England as well as in the 13 colonies. And the time frame is the 1730s and the 1740s. The 
first great awakening was significant because it was transdenominational. It wasn't a movement within the Church of England or within the Roman Catholic Church or within the Baptist. It was something that was happening across denominations, particularly across Protestant denominations. It was evangelical in character. So the First Great Awakening emphasized personal conversion, that a person should recognize their sinfulness before an almighty God and turn to God for salvation, particularly through the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is a pretty basic understanding of what the term evangelical means. The experts, I don't know what word should I use, proprietors, the people who were the leaders of the First Great Awakening, they built their movement on previous movements such as Puritanism, Pietism, and Presbyterianism. So let's quickly define those terms. Puritanism are the those that wanted to purify the Church of England. So when King Henry VIII, I am, I am, did his separation from the Roman Catholic Church, his motives were almost exclusively selfish for wanting to grant himself because once once the Church of England is established, the monarch is the head of the Church of England even to this day. So he was able to grant himself a divorce and then another divorce and then another divorce. And also to give the crown more power. So not only would the crown have political power, but also religious power within England. But King Henry VIII was born and raised a Catholic, so the, the Church of England under him and his successors was still a very Catholic organization. In it felt Catholic, it looked Catholic, it smelled Catholic. It was it was Catholic, just without a pope and without a connection to Rome. The Puritans were the ones that wanted to purify the Church of England for it to look a little bit more like John Calvin's Protestantism on the continent, that was more scripture focused, less focused on rituals, more focused on individual church communities and belonging to those church communities. Puritanism. And we already discussed before, last week, I, we'll, I will mention it again, not all Puritans were the same. Some Puritans really did want to change the or purify the Church of England from within. But other Puritans would eventually decide that they, were, that they should separate from the Church of England. They were known as separatists. And probably the most radical of those groups were the Baptists. And then pietism is the next movement that the First Great Awakening was built on. Pietism was an emphasis on strong doctrine, so it wasn't a wishy-washy religion, as well as an emphasis on holy living. So basically, if, if you really want to b boil it down to its simplest, pietism is basically taking your faith seriously. That it's not just an add-on to your life, but it is the point of your life, and we're going to do it right. And then Presbyterianism, that we, and as not a Presbyterian myself, I don't want to speak for the, the movement, but Presbyterianism basically was moving the power within the church back to a more local or at least a regional setting away from a hierarchical setting so church leaders uh, within the church or within a region would have more power than a king or a pope would. And so those were the movements that the First Great Awakening was built on. The big three names, and they are by no means the only names, the big three names in the First Great Awakening were George Whitfield, 
John Wesley, and Jonathan Edwards. So we'll start with Whitfield. And yes, you see that picture? He was cross-eyed. I was thinking he looked cross-eyed. Yep. He was known for being cross-eyed. But he was also known for being the greatest preacher of his day. Or, you know, the greatest orator. It is estimated that he preached 18,000 sermons. It's a lot of sermons. He would also engage in debates with other people. And strangely, while he was in the United States, he was a personal favorite of Benjamin Franklin. Which is significant because Benjamin Franklin was not in any way a devout Christian. I do not believe, having read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, I don't think he would have defined himself as a non-Christian, but I think he would have defined himself at very least as a free-thinking Christian, if not just a straight-up free-thinker or a deist. Despite his more, let's say, unmoored version of Christianity, he actually very much liked George Whitfield and sponsored his revival meetings in Philadelphia and in the Philadelphia region. Next, for those of us who are or have been or, or have connections to the Methodist movement, John Wesley. And I don't have his brother Charles up here, but his you could throw in Charles Wesley as well. Charles Wesley was a great hymn writer and wrote quite a few hymns. The Wesley brothers were highly educated, especially John. He was considered very smart. He was an Oxford theologian and he started the movement called Methodism. Now this is going to be an oversimplification, but the three teachings of Methodism, the, the method as it were, is that the foundation of the Christian faith is this. One, that people are all by nature dead in sin. Two, that people are justified by faith alone. And three, that faith produces both inward and outward holiness. What was that first one again? that people are, by nature, dead in sin. That we are, we are sinful and that we are unable to save ourselves. So we need salvation from without. So, so salvation doesn't come from within us, it comes from without. Specifically from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was number three again? Uh, I'll just give all three again. That people are all by nature dead in sin. That people are justified by faith alone. And that faith produces both inward and outward holiness. Originally, Methodism was a movement within Anglicanism. In fact, John Wesley was never a Methodist. If by Methodist you mean a different denomination. He was always an Anglican. It was later that Methodists kind of split off and started their own thing and became their own denomination. And then the, the next name we will talk about is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a much more severe man, but that doesn't mean he was bad. He was a pastor. He was a missionary. During part of his, his ministry, he actually tr went out and ministered to Native American tribes and lived amongst them. He was a theologian and a philosopher. He was considered one of the most intellectual Americans of his day, and a lot of people considered him the most intellectual American of his day. 
and still one of the smartest human beings that have ever walked the North American continent. He was the third president of Princeton. He was probably most known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now the title of that sermon alone makes makes most of us cringe a little bit. But Jonathan Edwards' method of trying to evangelize was to really hit home the need for salvation. If you only read the title of his most famous sermon, you would think that Jonathan Edwards worshipped and advocated for an angry, vindictive, hateful God. But that's not the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. Nevertheless, he was really he really hit home the even John John Wesley would agree because the first point of uh, John Wesley's Methodism was that people are all by nature dead in sin. Jonathan Edwards just hits that point harder that we are we're not just dead in sin we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's Anglican is what you said he was. Jonathan Edwards was not Anglican. He was Congregationalist. The Congregationalists were a group of Calvinists. They're Calvinistic. And they, other than that, they, they resembled uh, Baptists a lot in that, well, a lot of Baptists are Calvinists as well. But they emphasized local church autonomy. I think I will discuss them again when I get to one of the other, when I talk about the colonies. But if I don't, you can ask me again and I will, uh, I'll try to elaborate more on that. So those are the three big names of the First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening united allies across denominations. And so, like Benjamin Franklin's a good example. Benjamin Franklin had loose ties with the Quakers. He was not a Quaker. And probably considered himself just a, a non-church-going Christian or a questioning skeptical, agnostic type of Christian, but he totally supported George Whitfield. Thought he was a great speaker, thought he was good for their culture in there in Philadelphia. It would unite people who were particularly evangelical and really supported the idea of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether you're Methodist, Baptist, Congregationalist. So it would it would work across denominations. But at the same time, the First Great Awakening exacerbated divisions within denominations. And so it was really the beginning of denominational splits in America. So you would have Baptists who were more conservative and, and loved what they were seeing with the Great Awakening. Baptists who were more liberal and didn't like what they were seeing with the Great Awakening. But it was even more complicated than that because you, then you would have those conservatives who were theologically conservative but didn't like the emotional fervor of the Great Awakening so they would dislike it. But then you would have liberals who liked the emphasis on personal holiness, which would include things like being kind to the poor, reaching out to the Native Americans, and in some cases being anti-slavery, and so that would appeal to the liberals. So it wasn't an even split. So there were, there were liberals, conservatives on both sides. Of, basically it was controversial. Within denominations you would have groups that would not agree over what they were seeing with this big movement. It exacerbated, that's a hard word, those divisions within the denominations. And that's why there are so many different, for instance, Baptists, the Southern Baptists, the First Baptists. 
Yes. Well, and there's all kinds of reasons. The reason the Southern Baptists split off is very simple, slavery. In 1845, they... they uh, well, what really set it off was whether the American Baptist Convention would send international missionaries who were slaveholders. And that was really controversial. And the Southern Baptists split off because the Northern Baptists refused to send missionaries who were slaveholders. Which makes sense because unless, to my mind, of course, a lot of this makes sense to my mind. I'm a modern person, but if you're going to send somebody to another nation, unless they're going to Canada or Scotland, then you're probably going to be reaching out to people of color somewhere else on earth. Why would you send people who already showed a propensity for enslaving people of color in this in this country? But that's neither here nor there. I was and am a Southern Baptist, so I mean, obviously, we outgrew that crap. So that was that was good. And finally, on the first great awakening, the results was that it often left people more devoted to their faith, more knowledgeable about their faith. So, in other words, they were less apathetic or less. Well, honestly, what I see a lot of people, a lot of Christians who who claim the name of Christ and haven't read their Bible since the Reagan administration, you know. <laughs> So they're more devoted to their faith, more knowledgeable about their faith, and more evangelistic, more willing to spread the gospel to encourage people to turn to Christ. And, of course, the reason I bring all this up is it also left individual churches more democratic. So individuals within the church felt more, especially as it became more knowledgeable, felt more willing to voice up, to speak their mind within their local church congregation. So it, it produced the kind of skills and temperament necessary to also feel that way about political issues on the local level and then eventually on the colony-wide or the national level. Alright, so any questions about those things? That thus concludes our introduction lecture from last week. Those are the issues I forgot to get to last week. So now let's talk about Roanoke Colony. This is the first attempt by the English to establish colonies in the United States. This was a failed colony. The Roanoke Colony was established on Roanoke Island, and I'll show you the map here in a second. It was established in uh, Roanoke Island, North Carolina, in 1585. The sponsor of Roanoke Colony was this guy right here, Sir Walter Raleigh. And yes, Raleigh, North Carolina is named after Sir Walter Raleigh. He was Queen Elizabeth I's favorite explorer. And a lot of royal fan fiction has been devoted to whether or not these two were lovers as well. I know of no historical evidence that they were, but I'm also not a royal historian or a big fan. My mom has watched most of those, like the other Boleyn girl and those kind of things. She loves all that royal drama uh, you know, on Netflix or, or whatnot. She loves all that stuff. So the, the colony was established in 1585. Colony was established 1585. So that's the first time the English try to establish something in Americas. And so if you do the math, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. So this this is not quite a hundred years later, but it's been a hundred years, and the English haven't haven't really made an attempt yet. 
Roanoke Island was their first attempt. So the colony was established 1585. The a resupply uh, ship, the last resupply ship, was at the colony on 1588, and at that time the colony was still there. A, another ship doesn't come for two years. The next ship to come by is 1590. By that time, the colony has disappeared. Carved into the fortifications of the colony is one word, Croatoan. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. There has been endless speculation about what that is. Most of the, most of the people who were there at the time were pretty sure that that was a reference to an island that is now called Hatteras Island. And so they were probably telling anybody who comes later where we went. That they probably went to a different island. Maybe they were escaping. Maybe they, they were having problems with Native American tribes. Maybe they were having trouble finding food. For whatever reason, it seems like they got out of Dodge. Or they were all murdered by Native Americans. Or they all starved to death. Or they went and joined the Native American tribes and just melded in. The fact is we have no idea. We really don't know what happened to these individuals. One of the explorers who found the, the site and the word Croatoan, he was absolutely sure that they were talking about Hatteras Island on the Outer Banks. And bef but before he had a chance to investigate whether that was true, bad weather prevented their, their sh voyage and they had to head back to England. And so to this day, the fate of 120 colonists was never discovered. So let's look at some maps. So here's an overall map of the coast of North Carolina. North Carolina has an interesting coastline because most of North Carolina's coastline is protected, might be the right word, by the Outer Banks Island, which kind of form a, a straight, not, well, not a straight line, but kind of form a line just off into the ocean. So here is Roanoke Island. It is on that island where the Roanoke colony was established. Here is a better view of the barrier islands, the outer banks. And then Hatteras Island is that bigger one down, down below a little bit. Cape Hatteras? Yes. Exactly, that's the exact same place. By the way, I don't know this for a fact, but I've always heard that the people who live on the outer banks have the most interesting accent in the world. Like they're from North Carolina, so you'd think it was Southern, but it actually comes across more like a like a, a weird British accent, like like a British accent that you can't quite pin to any place in England. So if even, if you get it, even still, even still, if you get a chance, uh, my sister's gone to Nags Head and and uh, Roanoke. I have to ask her if they. Well, and it might not be all of the Outer Banks. It might just be certain islands. But if if you get a chance, Google something like. North Carolina Island weird accent. And then it'll, it'll come up and then you'll, you can see YouTube videos of some of these people and their, their interesting... Speech. Yeah, it's like, it's like somebody who have, has only heard a British accent a few times and then tries to replicate it. So it's not quite right, but it's, it's, it's a very interesting accent. And so, yeah, we'll leave this map up because uh, the next colony was a little more successful although they did face something called the Great Starvation. So it was a, it, it, they, the colony lasted, but it w wasn't all prosperity. And that's Jamestown. 
Jamestown is the first permanent English colony in North America. It was named after James I. This is the same James I who the river, the James River in Virginia is named after, and also the King James Version of the Bible. So this is about that same time. The King James Version of the Bible comes out in 1611. Jamestown was established in 1607, so right about the same time. Jamestown was established as James Fort. So we'll come back to these maps. So why? But here's James Fort. So why did they stop on on the island? Well, is there anything in history about that? Well, probably you see the ships there, so they they'll go to places where ships can find natural harbor. So, because I mean, if you're English, if you're showing up here, you're not walking here from England. So you gotta, you gotta get here. And they don't know what's beyond when they land. Oh, that's true. And also, take a look at this map. To call James Island an island, it's actually more like a peninsula, as close it is as it is. It's cut off right here in the James River by something called the Back River. So technically, it is an island. But it's it's so close to the peninsula that it's 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 more like part of the peninsula. So there's Jamestown, and then here's a, a if you back up a little bit, you see Jamestown's up by Williamsburg. Jamestown, Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg is in this area, and then this is Yorktown, where where Washington captures Cornwallis, and so together they're called the uh, tri. It's something with a triangle, like the yeah. And they're within 35 miles of each other. Yeah, they're very close together. So if you ever want to go on vacation, you can see three very significant locations. All real. I think they call it the Tourist Triangle. I think if that's the, if I remember right. But and then uh, so there's James Fort right there. James Fort was converted into a permanent settlement in 1610. Life was very hard. By the year 1617. Only 351 of the original 1,700 inhabitants were still around. Jamestown was made the Virginia colonial capital from 1616 when the Virginia was established until 1699. After that, it was moved to Williamsburg. Williamsburg? Williams, yeah. Colonial Williamsburg, yeah. A significant event that happens during this time frame when Jamestown is the capital is the is something called Bacon's Rebellion. In 1676, a man by the name of Nathaniel Bacon and a group of armed settlers rebels against the governor, a man by the name of William Berkeley, and they burned the town. The town was quickly rebuilt and it was not considered abandoned. Uh, so what what did Bacon's rebellion want? Was were they a were they an honorable group of rebels who wanted to you know feed the poor? No, no, they wanted the Virginia colony to violently drive out the Native Americans and to kill them if they won't get driven out. So yeah, white white and Native relations were not very good. Well, let's put it this way: they were very rarely good. The colonial capital uh, was moved to Williamsburg in 1699, and yet today, as I said, Jamestown, Colonial Williamsburg, and Yorktown form a historical triangle district in eastern Virginia. Any questions about Jamestown? It was Jamestown when Pocahontas was. was I know we I know believe that's so. a true story, but I think 
And, well, and yeah, spin. Pocahontas. Now, if if you get your history from the movie, the animated movie, then it was the the ages are all different. Pocahontas was younger than that. She was a small small kid, and then uh, she doesn't end up with John Smith. She ends up with actually the villain of the movie. Rolf was his name, the governor, and then she marries him. Moves, they go to England, and then she dies of some disease. I think she's only like twenty when she dies. Pocahontas's life was was very tragic. Next, let's talk about the Pilgrims. They were the next big movement tour of settlement. Uh, I, now, I mentioned this. I noticed this when I was editing the class last week. I said that most English settlers who come to North America come here for one of two reasons, and it's rarely both. Usually it's one or the other. And then I told you one and never got to the other. So here, here I'm going to fix that. Most English settlers who came to North America come for one of two reasons. One is economic interests, broadly. So it could be agricultural trade, etc., or religious freedom. And there might be some individuals who were there for both, but usually the reason for coming is one or the other. And the case of the Plymouth Pilgrims is certainly a case of wanting religious freedom. In 1610, the English established colonies as far north as Newfoundland for the purpose of cod fishing, but for the most part, before that, the, most of the English settlers were focusing on Virginia. But the Plymouth Council, Plymouth, England, a council in Plymouth, the Plymouth Council planned to use New England, so the area between Newfoundland and Virginia, they wanted to use New England as a location to establish colonies for religious separatists. Specifically, but not limited to, the Puritan pilgrims and separatists. The thinking was that if these people want religious freedom, they want to separate from the Church of England for a variety of reasons. So I guess we could put them in prison and kill them, or we could just send them over there. (laughs) Just go over there to America, do your thing. You can be free. Go have your thing over there. Most of what we know about, and when I say we, I'm not talking historians, I mean normal people, most of what we know about the pilgrims is probably untrue, based on stories about the first Thanksgiving. I would encourage you to do some reading on it if you wish. Life for the early pilgrims was also hard, but in time they were able to learn. Now the big problem with them was climate. I don't think they realize just how bad winters are in North America. If you actually look at a globe, Europe sits higher. It's higher by, I mean, more north. Europe generally sits more north than we are. So the the most northern place I've been on Earth is London. You know, because if you draw a line through London, it would go through the middle of Canada, or 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 at least like... You know, it would go north of, of Toronto. It would go north of Minnesota. It's, it's, it's further north than you think. But based on the way trade winds and, and ocean currents work, the north Europe runs hot. It runs hotter than North America. And so even though New England is south of England, it's so much colder. So much colder in the winter. But the religious pilgrims 
got used to it. The survivors did. They established their home in Massachusetts and in time built a strong colony. So what about those colonies? Let's take a look at those colonies. I'll bring up the next slide. I'm just going to say, right now in Ireland, it's 32 degrees and no, 40. And in Norway, it's 32. In, uh, in Oslo? No, in Eid. E-I-D-E on the west coast. Well, I know. In, in, um, That's where my friends live. Ukraine, I, of course, we were in Ukraine in the summer, but I hadn't realized just how, you know, Ukraine's about the same as Michigan. So here's, here's a, a, a map of the 13 colonies. I want to point a few things out. For the most part, the way early settlers thought about it, almost everything was within 20 or 30 miles of the coast. There was not a whole lot of inland settlement. So a lot of times you'll see every single... Every single of uh, one of the 13 colonies ha- is on the coast. Now, New Hampshire, admittedly, barely on the coast. Uh, today, you can drive the highway along the coast like 45 minutes. There's not a whole lot of coast for New Hampshire. But uh, with the exception of New Hampshire, all of these colonies have significant coastline. Ooh, I hadn't thought Pennsylvania and New York also have... Well, New York's got Long Island, but Pennsylvania, uh, its coastline is limited to Philadelphia basically. So with the exception of New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, all of these are heavily involved with coastline. So you notice the interior borders are not really what we would recognize today. Most of the land, the further you get away from the coast, the more the it's going to be either sparsely populated or it's going to be areas that are dominated by Native American culture, Native American tribes and societies. So Maine Part of Maine does not become its own state until Missouri becomes a state in 1820. It was part of a compromise. Missouri Compromise. Yeah, the Missouri Compromise. We talked about in the Civil War class that every time between the formation of, between the Constitution and the Civil War, Congress always tried to add two states at a time, either at the same time or really close together, to balance slave and free states. And power, so Maine wanted to be wanted to be separated from Massachusetts, and so they they were granted that in 1820. So yeah, when we talk about the original 13 colonies, Maine and Vermont are not of those 13 original colonies. They would come later. We'll talk about each of the 13 colonies in the order that they were colonized. First, Virginia. We already kind of mentioned that, but uh, Virginia was colonized in 1607. At first, when the English were colonizing North America, the idea was every part of North America, especially the coast, that the French or the Spanish didn't already have a valid claim on, the English would place a claim and all of that would be Virginia. So in theory, Virginia is from the French holdings to the Spanish holdings. I actually have, I know some people from Virginia, nobody ever mentions this. I've heard them talk about how they lost West Virginia uh, during the Civil War, how West Virginia was cut off. But that's not the only time Virginia's been shrinked. Virginia loses Kentucky. That's really early on. But in theory, all of this used to be Virginia when the English were first starting their colonization prog- process. Now, as we discuss, 
the crown will chop it up for a variety of reasons. Now, why was Virginia established? Mostly financial reasons. The purposes in establishing the colony of Virginia were agricultural, to try to increase farmland, especially for the kind of crops that would grow best in North America, stuff like tobacco was a big one. And then eventually, stuff like cotton. But we've talked about this in the Civil War class. Cotton is a kind of a niche crop until the cotton gin comes along. And once they invent the cotton gin to get the seeds out economically, then cotton explodes as a major crop. But early on, the big cash crop was tobacco. Also, Virginia was seen as a trading opportunity, uh, an opportunity to trade with settlers who were already on the continent, be they French or Spanish, should the English ever not be at war with them, but also an opportunity to trade with Native American tribes also when the English weren't trying to kill them. And also the idea is if you establish populations in Virginia, then the home islands can trade with the new populations. So by the time you get to the American Revolution, that was how England saw the colonies. They saw it as, an, as populations that could consume textiles, teas, and other items that are manufactured in Great Britain. It was also seen as a place that could be a hub for shipping because you see that really big bay right there, Chesapeake Bay. It's a great place with lots of natural harbors. And as a military necessity, a place to establish kind of a beachhead so that England can make claims on North America and be able to plant their flag as they were and then establish a military presence so they could fight the French or the Spanish should they ever have to do it. There was also the idea was that uh, this could be an opportunity to spread Christianity to the natives. By the time you get to the American Revolution, Virginia is the most populous state. It is the big, the big state. Next, Massachusetts. Let's see what our next slide is. Okay, so yeah, that, that's... Um, Oh, yeah, I, rem I remember why I had this. This is what Virginia is named after. Virginia is named after Queen Elizabeth I, whose nickname was the Virgin Queen. Was Queen Elizabeth actually a virgin? There's no way of knowing that historically. Well, it, no, it's because she never married. Elizabeth found out at, at a certain point she realized that she can dangle the thought of marriage. She never made any promises, but as long as she was marryable, then she could manipulate people to do things. Yeah, she could manipulate certain lords and other kingdoms and whatnot that because there's always the possibility that perhaps she could marry that person and and create a political alliance. So Queen Elizabeth I? Yep. So Queen Elizabeth I never marries and therefore never has any children. And so after her the Tudor line ends, and her cousin, James I, actually at that time known as James VI of Scotland, who is of the family of Stuart, the, so the Stuart line begins, because she never has any children of her own. That's why she's known as a virgin queen. That's why the nickname Virginia is established. Now Massachusetts. 
Massachusetts was established in 1620. The original purpose of Massachusetts was primarily religious. I mentioned this earlier about Congregationalists. The prevailing religious organization in Massachusetts was the Congregationalist Church. Congregationalists are Calvinistic. I guess I should take a few minutes to explain Calvinism. I'll make it. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. John Calvin really pushed a specific understanding of Protestant theology, where he tried to emphasize the sovereignty of God above the sovereignty of men, of humans, and so. John Wesley, for instance, would be an example of somebody who is Arminian. The Arminians emphasized that each person makes a decision to follow Christ, and that while John Wesley certainly would have said that God is sovereign, Arminians don't push the sovereignty of God to a point where it denies the sovereignty of mankind. So humans, under Arminianism, are given the Authority to make their own decision whether or not to follow God. Calvin taught that you are either elect or you are not. That the Holy Spirit has chosen you for salvation or you have not been chosen for salvation. And so I could go into more detail. I could give you a series of sermons right now. I'm not going to. The I've 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 wavered on that debate. I've gone from most of the way to Arminianism to almost full five point Calvinism, and I always kind of find myself back in the middle. I certainly, at, under no circumstance, want to. I'm speaking as a Christian and a pastor, not as the professor of this class. I certainly don't want to deny the sovereignty of God. God can do anything at any time for any reason because He is all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving, all-holy, etc. On the other hand, the New Testament speaks to individuals, encourages them to make decisions. That implies that you can make decisions, including apparently the all-important decision to follow Christ or not to follow Christ. So I'm undecided on the issue but uh, I, I leave it as an open question. The Congregationalists weren't. They were under, under the Calvinist understanding, full-on Calvinism, full five-point Calvinism. I know I keep using that term, but I'm not going to explain it. I don't have the time. Well, that just means strong Calvinism. They were also separatists, so they did not want to be remain connected to the Church of England. But that doesn't mean that the colony was separatist. The colony was perfectly... Uh, happy being a British colony uh, the, uh, tied to England, tied to the English crown. They just wanted to be religiously separate. Massachusetts was the second most populous colony. I mean, it, it's got some big cities in it, particularly Boston, but remember it also had Maine. Maine is not a very populated state now. It was far less then, but nevertheless, that's it was not only Massachusetts at the time, but it was also all of Maine. The next colony, the third colony to be established was New Hampshire. Its date is 1623. New Hampshire came about because there were competing land claims. Massachusetts naturally claimed it. 
because you have the what we now have the state of Massachusetts as well as the state of Maine right between them, New Hampshire. So Massachusetts, for obvious reasons, claimed it. But the land had been granted by the king to one Captain John Mason. John Mason just happened to be from the county in England called Hampshire, hence New Hampshire. Mason invested in the land and its in its development and in the building of cities and infrastructure, but unfortunately he never got to see it before he died. His heirs pressed their claim to the land, and eventually King Charles II validated their claims in the year 1679, and officially and, and completely removed it from Massachusetts, making it a, a separate colony. And in the process, cutting Massachusetts in half. So let's take a look at a map. So as you can see, the Massachusetts we know, the Maine that we know, right in between is New Hampshire, so Massachusetts gets cut in and half. all of that purple Massachusetts and above was considered Massachusetts? No, the colors right there are just t showing you the regions. So when the colonies talk about the middle colonies, they're talking about the green colonies. And when the colonists talk about New England, they're talking about everything to the north and east of New York. And the southern colonies were Maryland and everything south of that. So that's, that's all that those colors mean on that map. Good question. The next colony is Maryland. Its establishment is a little harder to date. We'll call it 1632 to 1634, somewhere in there. George Calvert, the first Baron Baltimore. The Baronet, the, the Baronet, no, the, I don't know what you would call a seat that a Baron holds, but that, that, Baron Rick, I don't know, whatever it's called. His nobility title was over a, a, stri a strip of land or a par parcel of land in County Langford in Ireland. So this is during a time when Ireland is under the control of the English. And George Calvert, the first Baron Baltimore, is a, holds a title of nobility over that land. He served as James I's Secretary of State. So we mentioned this before, James I is Elizabeth I's cousin. James I is the king. Jamestown is named after him. James River is named after him. The King James Bible is named after him. So Lord Baltimore is James I's Secretary of State. But then he resigns and publicly admits, he declares that he is a Catholic and that he is, not, he is unreformed. He is going to remain a Catholic. He petitions for a land claim in North America, somewhere between Virginia and Massachusetts. Preferably all of it. He doesn't get all of it. He gets a portion of it. But he presses for a land claim. Apparently, the, for the purpose of establishing a colony for the Catholics. So that English Catholics can have a colony of their own. Perhaps inspired by what the Congregationalists were able to do in Massachusetts. So in Massachusetts, Congregationalists were able to have a separate religious foundation 
and yet remain loyal to the crown. That apparently is what the first Baron Baltimore uh, wanted to tr- do. By the way, once again, just like George Mason, uh, or not George Mason, John Mason, uh, he never sees Maryland. He never comes to uh, America. When he died, the claim to the land was given to his son Cecil, the second Baron Baltimore, and like none of the Lords Baltimore at least according to my research, ever actually go to Maryland. The second Lord Baltimore, Cecil Calvert, rules as governor of Maryland, and never. And, but he, he rules as governor from London. Where does the name Maryland come from? Well, King Charles I's wife was named Maria. The Baron, first Baron Baltimore had a, a couple of other ideas of what he wanted to name the new territory, but King Charles suggested Terra Maria, which is the land of Mary, the land of Maria, the land of Mary, Maryland. And the Lord Baltimore wisely said, "That's a very good idea." So that's what the that's why it became known as Maryland. It's named after the wife of Charles the first. Next, Connecticut. We don't have to spend a whole lot of, uh, on Connecticut. Basically, it is was also established as a religious colony, this time for nonconformists from co- the Congregational Establishment in Massachusetts. So if you're following the line of descent, the Church of England breaks away from the Roman Catholic Church. The Congregationalists break away from the Church of England. And now a variety of nonconformists break away from the Congregationalists. And they're able to establish Connecticut in 1636. Connecticut and the next one we'll talk about, Rhode Island, they get, or get and New Jersey, by the way, and Delaware, they kind of get a bum rap because the way these, the way the, the colonies are set up it is basically understood that everything, if you draw parallel lines, everything out here belongs, in theory, belongs to the colonies. So Georgia goes from here to San Diego. South Carolina would be a thin strip of land, but it goes from here to L.A. North Carolina goes from here to San Francisco, Virginia, and all these colonies extend out forever. But Connecticut, Rhode Island, they they have no part of this scheme because they're blocked by two or three colonies between them and the rest of the continent. So that's his province of Quebec. That is not... Is that, that's what is Canada now? At this No, at this point, all of this is Canada. England doesn't uh, get the rights to Canada until after the French and Indian Wars. So as these are being established, Canada is a French holding. Now, I mentioned all that about the colonies because Connecticut does try to lay claim to Ohio, or at least portions of it. But the other states, particularly Pennsylvania and the states closer to it, when Connecticut presses their claim in court, they, they lose. They are, their, their claims to that, those regions are denied. When you say in court, you mean in, in, in courts? In England? No, no, I'm pretty sure the courts were held here, but... Uh-huh. When, when the claims were pressed. Now, if I remember right, the Connecticut versus Pennsylvania, I think it's Pennsylvania, it might have been New York, 
the, the, the case that I've read recently, I don't have the details in my notes, I've, I've just learned it recently. I believe that happens after independence. Because eventually the Congress under the Articles of Confederation, I don't have a good map, you'll just have to use the map of your mind, but the Articles of Confederation take effect during the Revolutionary War and go up right until the Constitution takes effect. The last, or the last major thing that the Articles, the Congress under the Articles of Confederation does is establishing the Northwest Ordinance, which establishes Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, portions of Minnesota, and Michigan, organizing them into new territories and establishing the rules about how those territories will be established, and most significantly, banning slavery in those territories. And if I remember right, part of the movement towards the Northwest Ordinance was settling the land claims that Connecticut had over the some of the Ohio River Valley. If I remember my facts correctly. I admit that I might not be having my facts correct. So they sent explorers out there to see that they wanted that area, huh? Oh yeah. A lot of and actually the French and Indian Wars, a lot of that's going to be because of exploration of the Ohio River Valley where the French are saying, No, you don't have access to this. You guys are on that side of the mountains. From the, from the mountains to the sea and, and the rest of the continent doesn't belong to you. Next, Rhode Island, the tiny little colony. Just like Connecticut, Rhode Island was established by religious nonconformists who couldn't cut it in Massachusetts, which was ruled by, at least religiously, ruled by the Congregationalists. But Rhode Island is like Connecticut on steroids. Because here, this right here is Roger Williams. Roger Williams is a fascinating character. He was expelled from Massachusetts because he was an advocate of freedom of religion and the separation of churches and state. By that, he intended that only in a society where there is no coercion, and only in that society where you're free to be Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, Hindu... Klingon, whatever you, Jedi, whatever you want to be. Only in that society can then a decision to follow Christ be meaningful. Because otherwise you just might be coerced into it by your the local, the local government, the local society, the local church could be pressuring you. So he was an advocate of freedom of religion and the separation of church and state. That the local government or the state or colonial government cannot tell the church what to do and vice versa. The church has no control over the secular government of the land as well. He establishes the city of Providence, which is one of the old kind of, it's not a term we use these days, but it is one of the old terms for God. You know, uh, calling on the wisdom of Providence uh, is calling upon the wisdom of God. He attempted to create harmony between European settlers and natives. It did not work. And he establishes the first Baptist church in America, in Providence, Rhode Island. And to this day, there actually is a church that's not called the First Baptist Church of Erie, or the First Baptist Church of you know Kansas City. It's the First Baptist Church of America. Still in effect. 
Uh, and as you can see right there, it, the church was gathered by Roger Williams in 1638. So Rhode Island, oh, and also uh, Roger Williams, actually I don't know if he was involved in this too, but I think he was, so I'm just going to say it, I might be wrong on the podcast, y'all. Uh, he he uh, established Brown University. Almost all of the Ivy League schools, by the way, with the exception of Penn, Penn, uh, the University of Pennsylvania was clearly started as a secular school from the get-go. Other than that, all of the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Columbia, were all started as religious institutions for the purpose of training pastors. And then they expanded from there into other fields of endeavor. All right, next, Delaware. Delaware came into existence because it it is the location of competing land claims. The history of Delaware is interesting. Both the Dutch, so Netherlands, as well as Sweden, had claims on the area. But when James, the Duke of York, took New York, we'll cover that in 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 a bit, then James claimed Delaware as well. The Lord Calvert, the Lord Baltimore, he thought that that area should belong to Maryland. Let's look at a map so we can have our moorings. So you see the little Delaware there? The Oh, and by the way, if you think Delaware is nowhere near New York, James, the Duke of York's claim was both New York and New Jersey. They, they were a combined claim when, when he had it. So the when you hear of New Amsterdam, which was the Dutch establishment of the... Basically, the, well, the... When we say the Dutch established New York, it's not like the Netherlands had outposts at Buffalo. The New Amsterdam colony, the Dutch colony, was basically the Hudson River Valley and the coastline of Long Island and New Jersey. And, and of course, the Dutch claimed Delaware as well, but Sweden also claimed the Delaware. There was an argument about who should have that. But Thanks to James, Duke of York, the Dutch and the Swedes lost their claims to the coast of North America. And also Pennsylvania thought that they should have a good claim to it as well. Now, the Penns, the Penn family, their claim was the weakest, mostly because Pennsylvania is one of the last colonies to be established, so they don't have a strong claim. And the establishment of Pennsylvania was clear that all of Pennsylvania was supposed to be to the west of the Delaware River, which would not include the state of Delaware. But, at one point, the city of Philadelphia was part of the Delaware claim. And so the Pens obviously got that. They were able to press their claim on that, because it, it is west of the Delaware River, so they were able to get the city of Philadelphia. Disputes between the Penn family and the Calvert family, the Lord's Baltimore, were settled by the work of two surveyors. The surveyors were Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. Mason Dixon, yep. Their Mason-Dixon line established the boundaries between Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. Next, I don't think I have a slide for this, but I'll double-check to make sure. Yep, that's. we're not talking about Pennsylvania yet. Next. It is. It is the guy on the oats, or at least... Or used to be. Yeah. The North Carolina and South Carolina came in as the colony of Carolina in 1663. Now, I hadn't realized this until this week. I always figured like there was some royal daughter named Carolina. Actually, 
Carolina is named after the male Charles I. If you translate his name into Latin and feminize it, it's Carolina. I don't know why they did that, but they did. So instead of naming it Charles Land or the colony of Charles, they called it Carolina. Charles I? Charles I, King Charles I. What is the purpose of Carolina? Well, mostly it was established by those who were bristling under Virginia's religious laws. Remember, Virginia wasn't established for religious purposes. But before... Well, actually, that's not what I'm about to say is not true because Roger Williams had these opinions. But um, as modern Americans, we tend to think in terms of religious freedom and separation of church and state. We think of those as a given. That wasn't really a given through most of human society, and certainly not in the colonies. And so even though Virginia wasn't established for particular religious motives, it was a religious colony because religion and government were rarely separated. And so those who bristled under Virginia's religious laws moved south. And also uh, what I call just basic settler motive. You see some land... There's not a whole lot of people there, so I'm going to go settle there and do my thing. The north and south parts of Carolina split in 1729 in order to settle political disputes between the citizens of those two parts of the colony. New York in 1664 was established as an an English colony. Before that, it had been New Amsterdam, and we talked about that already. The New Amsterdam was taken by James, the Duke of York. That's why it's called New York, because he was the Duke of York. The Dutch governor at the time was very unpopular, and so the colonists offered very little resistance. So the Dutch colonists in New York were actually, they disliked their governor so much they were okay with the English coming in and taking over. And so uh, James, the Duke of York, sent in Colonel Richard Nichols, and he became the first military, he became the first governor of the colony. New Jersey soon after was established, 1665, because the Duke of York granted the land between the Hudson River and the Delaware River, he granted that land to two of his friends, a Sir George Cataret and a Lord Berkeley of Stratton. And so he just gave part of his claim to them, and they established New Jersey. New Jersey, by the way, is named after the island of Jersey in the English Channel. And I actually don't know why it was named after New Jersey. Maybe they just liked the name. Finally, Pennsylvania in 1681 is the second to last of the 13 colonies to be established. The crown, and by the way, when you, when, when you hear terms like that, just the crown, you're talking about the institution. So the kings, the crown owed a debt to one Sir William Penn. The debt was 16,000 pounds, which is basically millions of dollars. The crown owned 16,000 pounds because Sir William Penn invested in the English Navy and the building of ships. Charles II still owed that debt to uh, Sir William Penn's son, 
also known as William Penn. Penn, the second William Penn, owed or, or, or he had he had converted to Quakerism. He had become a Quaker, and so he approaches the crown and with an idea. In order to pay this debt, why don't you give me a large land claim in North America? And the, uh, Charles II jumped at the opportunity, and so they granted all of the Pennsylvania land claims, so all of the territory west of the Delaware River. So, by, by the way, that meant that Pennsylvania, even though as close it is, as it is to the ocean, its only real access is the Delaware River. Uh, so, so Philadelphia gets really close to the ocean without actually being on the ocean. And finally, Georgia. Georgia was the ultimate borderlands. Georgia is the ultimate borderlands. There was, it was very sparsely populated, even by natives. But obviously there were far more natives than white people in the territory. But the English wanted a buffer state between their established colonies, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and the Spanish claims, particularly in Florida. And so James Oglethorpe, uh, I guess I got to spell that O L G E T H O R P E. So Ogle, Thor, and then P E. James Oglethorpe requested to King George II to grant him a colony south of Carolina for the purpose of developing the land and creating a buffer zone between Carolina, South Carolina, and the Spanish claims. I missed the year. Did you give us the year? 1732. So this is considerably later than the others. 1732. And also, I think one of you guys brought this up last week, James Oglethorpe's secondary purpose was in order to empty, maybe not completely empty, but to release a lot of debtors from debtor prison. So an offer was given to a lot of, of debtors that instead of staying in prison in England, we'll send you over to Georgia. You'll build up the land, you know, uh, develop it, and you can start a new life over there. We'll close tonight with, and I really should have saved more than ten minutes on this, the French and Indian Wars. So Georgia was named after King George? Yes. Okay. King George, Georgia was named after King George II the father of King George III, the king that we rebel against. That, thank you for pointing that out. Yes, is named after King George. So the Ohio River Valley, so basically from Pittsburgh to Memphis, that's the Ohio River Valley. The Ohio River Valley was disputed between the French and the British. The French basically claimed that the English only had any claim east of the Appalachian Mountains. That they had no claims west of the mountains. The English, obviously, disagreed. I'm not going to go into all the details, but this strapping young lad leads a British contingent into 
the Ohio River Valley in the areas around what we now call Pittsburgh. This is George Washington. Yep, this is George. This is where George Washington made his name. Yep, well, it also, he also, uh, his performance in the French and Indian Wars had some successes and some failures. It was not an unqualified success. But, by the way, this means that George Washington, though the president, our first president, actually served another country's military. He was a major in the British Army. George Washington leads his contingent into the upper Ohio River Valley. There, he confronted and defeated a French contingent and then set up what was called Fort Necessity. You would think Fort Necessity is a big old fort. There it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not sure if that's the actual wood. Probably not, as surely would have rotted by now. This was 300 years ago. Yeah. Not quite 300 years ago. But this is a, an accurate re- uh, recreation. If, if it's not the original, then it's an accurate recreational of the original. It's a very small fort. But a battle was fought there that Washington loses, and he has to abandon the fort in western Pennsylvania. These excursions which were not just limited to Washington, but there were other excursions as well. There's a whole series of events that happened in the Upper River Valley. This is actually the beginning of not only the French and Indian Wars, it is the beginning of what is known as the Seven Years' War. A large war between England and France that involved so many of their individual allies that sometimes the Seven Years' War is described as kind of a World War Zero. It was, a, it was a long, bloody conflict between two very powerful European powers. The smallest of the theaters in this war is probably in North America. Fewer soldiers on either side, France or England, are devoted here than they are devoted in, on the continent or in places like India or on the high seas. During this war, different native tribes sided with different sides. So some would side with the French, some would side with the English. So, for instance, on the English side, you had the Iroquois Confederacy, the Wyandot, the Catawba, and briefly, the Cherokees, all fought on the side of the English. On the France's side, you had the Algonquin, the ancient rivals of the Iroquois. You had the Ottawa and the Shawnee, as well as others. One of the Ottawa chiefs was a man by the name of Pontiac. At a certain point in the French and Indian Wars, the French are basically spent. They've got no will to fight left, at least not in North America. I believe the Seven Years' War continues in other areas. So after French offensives basically end in North America, Pontiac continues the battle for a few more years, including an attack on Detroit. This is what Detroit looked like during the time when Pontiac attacked Detroit. So it's not not very big. And I believe that's our last uh, slide. The French and Indian Wars... I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, the French and Indian Wars ends. Well, I'm, I'm basically I'm skipping the battles. The battles. 
I may be showing my hand here, I don't find them that interesting. Most of the battles in the French and Indian Wars are small. Now, it is interesting, the, the political dynamics between how the na- different native tribes fight against each other and how they choose who they're going to side with on the French and English, but basically, let's jump to the end. The French and Indian Wars, as well as the Seven Years' War as a whole, ends with the Treaty of Paris in 1763. I'll bring a map back so we can take a look. Basically, at the end of the Seven Years' War, France has a bunch has conquered a bunch of British holdings. The British have conquered a lot of French holdings. And so during the treaty, they're basically giving a lot of stuff back. So a lot of, of territory that the French have conquered from the British, the British get almost all of that back. But since the French basically lose the war, they actually have to give up quite a bit. So what the French actually hand over to Britain includes all of the French claim east of the Mississippi River. So all of that, the Ohio River Valley, all of that, all of the French claims from the Mississippi River over to the Appalachian Mountains. The French released their claim on that territory. Now, do they abandon all the forts? No, they do not. This is, by the way, something the British will duplicate after we get our independence and the British sign the neck, uh, different Treaty of Paris. By the way, there's like ten treaties of Paris. They're uh, after different wars. So when you say the Treaty of Paris, you've got to throw a year on it. When we gain our independence, the British are part of that treaty is they're supposed to leave their forts in North America, and they do not. So the French and the British are two birds of a feather on that. But a biggie is that the French release their holdings of Canada. So Canada switches from French to British control. Even though it is basically the youngest of the British colonies, or set of colonies, not all Brit- Canada is not just one big colony, during the American Revolution, it's the one that stays the most loyal to Britain, and in fact never participates in the American Revolution. Even though the article, one of the Articles of the Confederation is an open invitation to Canada, that if Canada ever wants to join, you guys just come on, you can join us. We have a, there's an open invitation for you. As well as the French give up the islands of Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines, and Tobago. So all those islands in the Caribbean become English holdings. For the purpose of this class, what's important to know is that the French and Indian War was long and expensive. Because how the British choose to pay for that is going to be a lot of the reasons why the colonists get upset, mostly through taxation issues. First Treaty of Paris. I wrote down 1836. Now, I don't, don't write the word First Treaty of Paris because I don't think this is the First oh, Treaty okay. of Paris. But the Treaty of Paris that specifically deals with the French and Indian Wars is 1763. Okay. So we're, we're about 15 years before... Independence, give or take. Actually, we're only 11 years before independence, about 15 years before we secure independence. Any questions or comments? Oh yeah, we covered a lot today. So next week we'll... Yep, next week we will follow the aftermath 
of the French and Indian Wars as we see the colonies getting upset. We hope you have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. Scholar Scholars written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.